It's Wednesday afternoon outside the city of Jerusalem. A couple of days ago, a man named Jesus and his disciples entered into Jerusalem, and a great controversy has begun. You are intrigued and begin to follow this man Jesus because of the things that you have heard regarding him and the things that are testified of him. You have heard this man teach in the temple and understand him to be a man of great wisdom and knowledge regarding the law and the writings of the Torah. Much excitement and intrigue surround Jesus. Some have said that this man Jesus is a teacher or a rabbi. Some have rumored that he has performed miracles and many marvelous things that no one could do except God was with him. Some say that he is a blasphemer claiming to be the Son of God and a rebel, one that violates the very law of Moses. Others have said that it is of a certain that this is the Messiah which has come to take away the sins of the world and bring salvation to the nation of Israel. Some say he is of a certain the Son of God, and wanting to find out more for yourself, you begin to approach Jesus. But you decide simply to follow and see for yourself who this man really is. Two of the man's disciples have been sent inside the city to prepare the Passover meal that will take place the next day. It's now Thursday after sundown. Now the day being Thursday at the time of the Passover, you see this man and his disciples heading toward a home where the Passover feast has been prepared in an upper room. The command to eat the Passover lamb immediately after sundown is about to be fulfilled by Jesus and his disciples. You see Jesus and the twelve enter into the upper room where the feast had been prepared the previous day by Peter and John. During the Passover meal, something else happens, and one of his disciples, whose name is Judas, leaves the feast and runs by you, headed toward the temple. As you wait in the street, awaiting the next moves of Jesus. The night continues on, and Jesus and his eleven disciples now come down from the upper room where they had partaken of that Passover. There is an emotional strain upon the face of Jesus as they begin to depart outside of the city. They're heading east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley toward the place called the Mount of Olives. You were aware that this had been a favorite place of Jesus when in or around Jerusalem. It was on this mount earlier in the week that he sat with his disciples and told them about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. The journey from the upper room in the western section of Jerusalem to this Mount of Olives took approximately 30 minutes. You begin to join yourself on their journey to Gethsemane. Jesus continues teaching as they walk together. Thomas, one of the twelve, asked Jesus how they are to know the way and where it was that Jesus was going. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. You begin to wonder, what does this teaching mean? Could this really be the one that was prophesied of? The Messiah, the Savior, the Great Restorer. Hundreds of questions swirl in your mind as you consider these words of Jesus. Jesus continues teaching and speaking to his disciples. He speaks of such things as a Holy Spirit that he would send to comfort them. Predictions of his own death and his resurrection. 
his speech and conversation strike you of someone that's borderline insane? You begin to simply walk away, but there's still a twinge of curiosity within your heart. And because of that remaining curiosity and the question that you have, you ponder these things. What if he truly is who he is claiming to be? You decide to stay and continue your observations. You've now reached the Mount of Olives, also known as that Garden of Gethsemane. In the middle of the night, you begin to wonder what is it that Jesus is doing at this late hour with his disciples in this garden, and you notice him giving them instruction. Jesus commands them, sit ye here while I shall pray. After giving them instructions, you notice Jesus and three of the disciples journey a little farther into that garden. From a distance, you notice Jesus now leaves those three and continues his walk alone. You notice also that his disciples who had begun praying have now fallen asleep. Jesus concludes his prayer and returns to his disciples, then again goes away and prays another time. After his second prayer, Jesus comes once again to his sleeping disciples and returns a final time to pray to his Father. And you faintly hear these words through the darkness. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see Jesus returning to his disciples after this prayer, and you notice that his sweat appears to have mixed with blood somehow. He must be experiencing a tremendous amount of emotional strain and emotional pain and stress. You begin to wonder what is it that Jesus is facing and dealing with that would cause this kind of an emotional despair. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's interesting that St. Luke, the physician, is the only one to mention this. Every trick imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this description, apparently under the mistaken impression that this just doesn't happen. A great deal of effort could have been saved had the doubters consulted the medical literature on the topic. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. Under great emotional stress of the kind that our Lord must, must have been suffering, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. This process might well have produced marked weakness and possible shock. As you consider the blood dripping as sweat from his forehead, he rejoins his disciples in the garden. Now the attention shifts to what looks like a mob of men rushing toward the place where Jesus and his followers had gathered. You notice that the mob consists of religious leaders from Jerusalem, armed Roman authorities, and they are being led by a man whose name was Judas, who had been one of the twelve that had celebrated that Passover earlier with Jesus. Now you're confused and ask within yourself, why is Judas escorting an armed mob to a place where Jesus had simply come to pray? Judas approaches Jesus. They have an exchange of words and you see Judas kiss the cheek of Jesus. You hear Jesus ask who it is that they are seeking. 
the reply is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answers, I am he. When Jesus spoke these words, the men attempting to take him captive fall away to the ground with no apparent force against them. Jesus was still in control. There's something special about him. As one of the servants of the high priest approached to take Jesus into custody, you see one of the disciples, whose name is Peter, draw out a sword and swing for the head of that servant. The man's ear is severed from his body and it falls to the earth, and Jesus quickly instructs that disciple Peter to put away his sword. Jesus reaches down to the ground for the man's ear and places it back on the head of Malchus, and he is healed. This you had never seen before. You again think to yourself that Jesus is not just another man. Maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the Savior. Maybe he is the Christ. You continue to follow behind as the authorities take Jesus into custody and lead him back to Jerusalem. Jesus is taken bound to the house of one man named Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. You can hear inside the house as Annas begins to question Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered, I spake openly to the world I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers stood by, struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you smite me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was next brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. It is here that the first physical trauma is inflicted. A soldier strikes Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfold him and mockingly taunt him to identify them as each one would pass by, spat upon him, and struck him in the face. You notice that this session and trial was a mockery. Nothing was to be accomplished at the, out, the house of Annas. Jesus refused to be part of such a charade and was removed and now stands before the high priest. As you continue to closely follow Jesus through the night, which seemingly never ends, he's now, it's now turned to early morning, and you're outside the palace of the high priest. There you notice a couple of the disciples that had accompanied Jesus the night as well. One of the disciples is asked by a girl at the door if he was this man's follower. You hear Peter reply, I am not. A little later, you notice the same disciple warming himself by the fire, and again he is questioned on his relationship with this man, Jesus. And again, Peter denies any knowledge of Jesus. And he continues to warm himself by that fire. At this time, Jesus has been taken inside the palace to be questioned. Then you notice Peter by the gate. Another girl passes and sees him and says for sure that you had been with Jesus of Nazareth. 
This time, Peter not only denies the accusation, but began to curse and to swear that he didn't know that man. As Peter denies Christ for this the third time, in the distance you hear the crowing of a rooster. Immediately you look upon Peter and notice that Jesus in the upper chamber has looked down and Peter begins to weep bitterly. Jesus seems to be facing a great trial, but for what and why? More questions swirl in your mind now as the early morning hours pass on. Jesus is led from one place to another. You attempt to stay close to the crowd that's following and watching these events unfold. In these early morning hours as day is breaking, Jesus is led to the Sanhedrin council to stand trial before the highest judicial tribunal of the Jewish people. As the council assembles and begins to question Jesus, you overhear the exchange of words. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard from his own mouth. Jesus seems to have just spoken blasphemous words. And he deserves to be punished for what he is saying. You wonder again as you consider the things that you've seen with your own eyes. Is Jesus mad? Is he insane? Or is he the Son of God? See, after this, Jesus is taken immediately to the palace of the Roman governor whose name was Pilate. Pilate questions the men delivering Jesus as to what crimes Jesus had committed. When not convinced by their answers, Pilate instructs the Jews to take Jesus and judge and punish him by their own laws. Immediately, the Jews propose another charge against Jesus, claiming that Jesus opposed the paying of taxes to Caesar and that he himself claims to be a king. Pilate could not ignore these charges and now is forced to personally investigate this matter. You ask, why do these Jews hate Jesus so much? After a short conversation with Jesus, Pilate returns to the Jewish leaders and reveals that there is no charge or accusation that he can see that is valid to hold against Jesus. The Jews then put forth another accusation that Jesus has caused an uproar all over Judea and had begun that in Galilee. Pilate responds by asking, Is Jesus a Galilean? When he learned that Jesus was, he realized that Jesus was actually under the jurisdiction and authority of Herod. Jesus was taken now to stand before Herod. You follow the parade of soldiers who accompany Jesus to stand before Herod, and you continue to observe this trial. Herod had heard of Jesus and was anxious, apparently, to see Jesus perform some miraculous deed and keep him entertained. Herod's men dressed Jesus in a gorgeous, elegant robe, and all that were there mocked him. Finding no real fault in Jesus because of his silence in all matters and 
Herod's tiring of not witnessing the miracle that he had desired to see of Jesus, he sends Jesus again back to Pilate. Pilate again must deal with the problem of Jesus. It's now about 7.30 a.m. It's been a long night. You begin to imagine the stress and the strain that Jesus must be feeling. He must be exhausted, you think to yourself. Pilate attempts one final time to release Jesus, for he can find no fault or reason to punish him. And Pilate, as was the custom, was willing to release unto them a prisoner of their choosing. He gives them the option of a known rebel and criminal named Barabbas. And this man, Jesus. Without hesitation, they request the release of Barabbas. This answer confounds your mind. You see, the deeds and the crimes of Barabbas are are well known. But what has Jesus done to deserve what he's experiencing? Suddenly you find yourself engulfed in a large multitude of people gathered outside of Pilate's palace and Pilate appears and asks the multitude who they would that he should release unto them. The crowd being stirred up by the chief priests and elders began chanting, Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! And you can't believe what you're hearing. Pilate then questions, What will you have me to do with Jesus? And the crowd cries out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Such hate and disdain for an innocent man. Pilate again reasons and questions them on what evil has this man Jesus done? They get louder and louder and cry out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Crucify Him! They even go to the point to accept the responsibility for His death and punishment. Then answered all the people and said, Be his blood be on us and on our children. The sentence has been handed down. Jesus would be executed. The method that would be utilized was that of crucifixion. You had seen many people executed in this manner. The sentence was not surprising to you. Other questions arise in your mind that if this man is the Son of God, why is he allowing this to happen? Why would God allow this to happen? Surely, Jesus will be spared. Confusion reigns in your weary mind as you see Jesus taken within the fortress where the physical torture would begin as it so often did with the scourging of the criminals before they are taken and crucified on their crosses. You've witnessed a scourging before and you realize that many criminals never make it to their cross because of the severity of the beating that the professional soldiers put on those who have been sentenced to die. The soldier's job was to inflict the maximum amount of pain and suffering up until the point of death and then stop. You realize the horrible suffering that Jesus is about to endure and you ask yourself, For what purpose? 
See, preparations for the scourging were carried out when the prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands were tied to a post above his head. It's doubtful that the Romans would have made any attempt to follow the Jewish uh, law or custom in this matter, but the Jews did have an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with a flagrum in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first the thongs cut through the skin only, then as the blows continue they cut deeper and deeper into the subcutaneous tissues. This produces an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels in the underlying muscle tissue. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises which are then broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding flesh. When it's determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating ceases. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement below, wet and soaked in his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. So they throw a robe across his shredded back and across his shoulders. They place a stick in his right hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. Flexible branches covered with long thorns commonly used to bundle firewood are plated into the shape of a crown and this is pressed in to his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the human body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper and deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire their sadistic sport and they tear the robe from his back. The robe, already having adhered to clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal causes excruciating pain just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage. And almost as though he were again being whipped, the wounds begin to bleed. After the severe scourging of Jesus, he's led back to Pilate one final time. Pilate is still unable to find fault in Jesus, and he attempts again to hand Jesus back over and let him go. You see, Pilate did not want to sentence this man to death because he knew there was something different about him. Perhaps Pilate's questions were the same as yours. Could he be the Son of God, the Messiah? But Pilate realized that there was nothing he could say to quench the thirst that this mob had for the blood of Jesus. So he turns him over to them, and in doing so, he sentences Jesus to death. It's now 8 a.m. The death warrant has been prepared and signed by Pilate, and Jesus, beaten nearly to his death, awaits the parade of criminals to the place where he would take his final breaths in this life. 
The place where the criminals were to be led was a familiar place of death and execution. The name of the place is Golgotha, which is to say a place of a skull. You have now followed Jesus uh, through a day and a half and have seen the events unfold, and all of those events have led to this place and this time, and you still don't understand for what purpose. You see Jesus exit the palace, and you say to yourself, this man can't take much more. The cross beam of his cross is strapped across his shredded back, and he's carrying it through the crowd as the soldiers bearing the plaque with his charge engraved on it go on before him. You notice the inscription as it reads, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Two other criminals are bearing crosses as well, but their crimes are well known and well documented. The death march begins. A man of Cyrene is found and he is compelled to carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the journey because Jesus can no longer carry it himself. A great number of people begin to follow the procession. Some women are lamenting and weeping for this man Jesus. You hear faintly the words of this man as he's comforting them on this journey. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breast which never nursed. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock until the 650-yard journey from the fortress of Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. The criminals are prepared for their crucifixion, and you continue to watch. This process has taken place countless times, but something about this execution is unique. It's now 9 a.m., Jerusalem is coming to life in anticipation of the most important day of their religious year. This day was the day of the Passover, a day of remembrance and a day of expectation, remembrance for the deliverance God provided the Jews from Egypt some 1,500 years earlier, and a great expectation of a king and a Messiah that God would send to restore the kingdom and David's throne. But outside the city here at Golgotha, a man who had claimed to be that very king and Messiah is about to be put to death. They offer him vinegar and gall to drink, and he tastes it and refuses to drink. It was time to crucify him. The two other criminals were on their crosses. One would be on his left, the other on his right. And surely the Son of God would not die this way. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders pressed against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum is then lifted in its place at the top of the stipes, and the title is reading, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, is nailed into its place. The left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes downward, a nail is driven through the arch of each. 
leaving the knees moderately flexed, the victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes with stimuli to the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nails or the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath and relief. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded. And sitting down, you watch him there. Jesus has been crucified. You look at the crowd who is witnessing these events along with you and you see all manner and various reactions of these people. Some are mocking him. Some are ignoring him altogether. Some are weeping and mourning over his imminent death. You notice Roman soldiers casting lots and gambling for the clothing that Jesus had been wearing. Your eyes are immediately turned to Jesus hanging there on the cross. You move closer and you hear His voice utter these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What could that comment mean? Forgiveness? For who? From who? What did Jesus mean? You remain there and observe what will happen next. Then you notice one of the criminals crucified with Jesus begins conversing with him, and you can't make out what the criminal says, but you distinctly hear the words of Jesus, Today you will be with me in paradise. Once again, the same questions come to your mind. Then you notice Jesus as he looks down from his cross where he is in pain and agony, and he sees his dear friend, and disciple the young man John, standing there consoling his mother Mary. He finds the strength to utter these words, Behold your mother. Then looking to his mother Mary, Woman, behold your son. Then you hear Jesus cry out, I thirst. A sponge that was soaked in Pasca, the cheap sour wine, which is the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. He apparently doesn't take any of the liquid. The body of Jesus is now in extremis. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. It's now noon. Darkness has set in over all the land. 
darkness in the middle of the day. This is not normal. You wonder, is there significance to this phenomenon? Jesus continues to hang, and with each breath He takes, it's harder than the previous. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue is torn from His lacerated back as He moves up and down against the timber of that cross. Then another agony begins. A terrible crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now 3 p.m. Darkness has not ceased since noon. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You recognize that this is a direct quotation of the 22nd Psalm. You reflect back on another portion of that psalm in verse 14 that says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the mist of my bowels. Could this truly be the one that the psalmist was writing about? You wonder, but surely God would not forsake His own Son. And if He is, for what purpose? It doesn't compute or make sense in your mind. And Jesus continues to struggle to breathe on that cross. It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus then cries out again, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. You now begin to feel his pain. Depression as you watch this man die before your own eyes. Who is this man? His mission of atonement near complete. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters, It is finished he bows his head and he stops breathing Jesus is dead all of a sudden in the darkness there's a great earthquake simultaneously later you learn that the veil of the temple had been torn in two It strikes you that this was no ordinary crucifixion. This was no ordinary man. You see the centurion there who had been there throughout the death of this man. And you hear his reaction to seeing these things come to pass. He says, truly, this was the Son of God. What is it that's taken place here? Think of the consequences for mankind if they just murdered the Son of God. 
wouldn't they be punished by suffering the wrath of God? To speed up the death process, one of the soldiers comes to break the legs of the criminals hanging on their crosses. And when he comes to Jesus, he notices that Jesus is already dead. Instead of breaking the legs, he draws out his spear. The legionnaire drove his lance through the fifth inner space between the ribs upward through the pericardium and into the heart. The 34th verse of the 19th uh, chapter of the Gospel of John records, and immediately there came out blood and water. That is to say, there was an escape of water fluid from the sac surrounding the heart. Not aware of it at the time, you had just witnessed the single greatest event in the history of the world. Many questions still linger in your weary mind as to the truth about Jesus. The fact remains that Jesus is dead, hanging on a cross as you gaze upon him. What kind of God would allow his son to suffer this way? Was Jesus just another man? What about all the signs and spectacular things that you had witnessed over the last two days of journeying with Jesus? What did this death accomplish? You consider the question. We weren't there. We didn't get to see it with our own eyes. But our heart should be broken this morning. Understanding the reality that all those things that we just talked about and studied from God's word, Jesus suffered. And we need to understand he suffered those things because of us. It's because we're sinful. And because we're sinful, that caused a great separation between us and our Creator. And God looked down at His creation and said, I love them so much that I'm going to take care of the problem for them. And I'm going to take care of it in such a way that they won't be able to mistake how much I love them. Because I'll give them something I've never asked them to give me. I'll give them my only begotten Son. And I want you to think about the pain Jesus endured. And I know we give it lip service, and I know we do the best that we can. We come around this table to do this in remembrance of him, and we remember his body and his blood. But right now, I want you to think about the pain. And understand that those stripes that were laid across his back were because of you and me. And I have to think in my mind, which lashing of that whip was because of Chase's sin. Which slap across the face was because of my rebellion against the will of God? Which striking of that rod into that crown of thorns driving them deeper and deeper into his scalp was because I was lost. We have to keep the cross vivid in our mind.
we have to keep the details of what Jesus suffered with us every day. Because that's what ought to motivate the change that's within us to glorify and honor God because of that sacrifice. But I'm thankful that the story didn't end with Jesus on that cross. Do you know what happened? They took his body down. A body that had given everything that it could give. A body that was worn out. A body that had borne the brunt of the wrath of God is taken down from that cross. And in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38, John's record says, After this, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and a hundred pounds, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in the strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. They took the dead body of Jesus soaked in blood. They wrapped it. They took it to the tomb. And they put him inside. I'm sure in their minds, hope was lost. They couldn't deny what they were seeing. They couldn't deny that the one they had faith in, the one they trusted, is laying there dead. And now he's buried. But you know, Jesus had made them a promise, hadn't he? He had told the religious leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. He had told them, the Son of Man goes into the city and I'm going to be murdered, but I'm going to return. But you know, those words seemed like a faint, distant memory because they couldn't overcome what their eyes saw at the cross. Matthew 27 and verse 59 it says, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. See, there was other business to attend to. It was a preparation day. They had other responsibilities to honor God. And they left the body of Jesus in the tomb. Did Jesus deserve to die? He didn't. You know who did deserve to die? I deserve to die. But God's grace and mercy allowed Jesus' death to be the payment for my sins. And when he raised him from the dead... 
that put to death any perceived power that Satan had. Because you know the only power that Satan had was the fear of death. He didn't even have death. <laughs> it was just the perception that he did. And people's fear of that. And when Jesus came out of the grave alive, it forever put away that thought and accusation. And Jesus had the keys. And Jesus had all authority. See, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 speaks to the great payment that God made for us. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You see, as Jesus hung on that cross, His blood was shed and He laid down His life and He said, It is finished. It was all sufficient to take care of the problem of sin and the debt that our sin had incurred. And God said, this is a sufficient payment and my people, my creation, all mankind can now be justified because of what my son has done for them. The cross glorified God. We think of it as a tragic scene and it was but it brought glory and honor to God because it was His will to save His people. And that's how He accomplished it. Later on in the book of Romans chapter 5, we see the idea of a provision that's made. Verse 8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. God made a way. A way that you and I could not create on our own. And how many times through history have man tried to create pathways and how they can access and get to God? And every time man fails... Because Jesus made that proclamation that we started our study with this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the only access to God. And this morning, if you don't believe that and you don't trust that, your soul is in danger and in jeopardy. And you're denying a free gift of the grace and mercy of God that He has already paid for your sins. And please don't make the mistake of leaving here this morning not having your sin taken care of by the blood of Jesus. You need the forgiveness of God. You see, Jesus came by water and blood. 1 John 5 and verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Think about this for a second. Jesus came by what? Water and blood. The blood's easy to identify, isn't it? What was the blood? It was the blood he shed in his death on the cross. The beating that caused the blood to begin to flow. The th crown of thorns in his scalp that caused that bleeding. As the 
soldier comes and pierces his side, what comes out? Blood and water. But how is it that Jesus came by water? It's because Jesus submitted to baptism to fulfill all righteousness. And it was when he came by baptism that he began that earthly ministry of going and preaching to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, that really makes sense when we go back to the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he shall not. And Nicodemus said, what, can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And what we have to understand is that rebirth for you and I is a single rebirth. And there's only one thing that the New Testament teaches where water and blood come together to perform a birth. And this morning, it's not if we pray to God. It's not if we go out and we good, do good deeds and we're good people and we're good neighbors. I want to tell you, the blood and the water meet in one place. And that's in baptism. The New Testament clearly teaches that it's through a burial with Christ in which we come in contact with His death. Is His death important? We've spent a half a week talking about it. How many weeks could we spend talking about it? We could talk about it every day and not exhaust it. It's that powerful. His blood is that important. And how we access that blood is paramount to our salvation. And this morning, if you've not ever accessed the blood, please know it's freely available to you. And if you'll submit and be buried with your Lord in baptism, He'll do something in that water. That water is not mystical. That water is not powerful. It's, it's water. But what it represents is far more important. Because what it represents is your heart willing to submit to the authority of God. And when you're under that water, in that watery grave, God performs an operation. It's not a work of man. You don't have to worry about thinking that, well, that's a work of man and we're trying to say we're justified by works. In baptism, you do no work. In baptism, you submit to the working and the power of God. For He removes your sins. He destroys the old man. And when you come up out of the water, you're a new life. Born of the water and the Spirit. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Please listen to these words. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. This morning, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, not because it's a doctrine of the churches of Christ. 
You need to be baptized for the remission of your sins because it's the only thing that gives you access to the blood that was shed in his death. And you're buried with him. Jesus' body died. They put it in a tomb. And three days later, he came forth from the grave alive and victorious, right? You know, when we're baptized, we go down into the water, we're buried. God performs that miraculous work of separating us from our sins and we arise to walk in newness of life. It's a perfect picture. It's a perfect image of what God did with Jesus. And if you'll submit to that this morning, I want to tell you there's a victory to be had. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at about verse 50. It's a passage we often read at funerals. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul starts out by talking about the gospel. But then the end of the chapter, he says, you know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. See, there's something that has to change within us. And we're born again as we're baptized into Christ. And with that, we inherit all the promises that Christ had made. The promises of peace. The promise of security. The promise of heaven. And brethren, that's victory. That's victory we can stand in. That's victory we can be assured of. And that's victory that should motivate us to go live a life for him. Verse 54 says, So when this corruptible has been put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of the sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, do you need victory over sin? Come to Jesus. Think about the suffering. Think about the pain. Think about everything Jesus suffered. And if you walk away this morning without your sins forgiven for you, that sacrifice means nothing. But if you come willing to accept it and be obedient to it, it'll change your life. And this morning, God has prepared the feast. When Jesus died, the preparation was done. And he invites you to come. All things are ready. Accept his invitation to come and be with him. Consider Christ, consider your heart, and come this morning while we stand and while we sing.